I have been studying the book of Exodus with you, and I have gone through it many times in my life, and this past week, more in depth, and in the weeks prior to that, I should say too, and I have been blown away at some of the things that God has revealed to us in the book of Exodus. Who knew the Old Testament had good stuff in it, right? But uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's an amazing book, and there's some really cool stuff. And I'm excited to be able to bring that to you, things that God has put on my heart as I've studied it, the, uh, these passages that we're going to go through this morning. I'm excited to share that with you, and I'll just pray even right now that God would allow his Holy Spirit to uh, make those, which are just my words, um, that you would see some of the things he pressed, impressed upon my heart this week. As you know, over the last uh, several weeks, we have been going through the book of Exodus, and last week, Pastor Dave talked to us about the 10th plague in Egypt, and that was the plague that took the firstborn son of all the Egyptian uh, households. This was what finally broke Pharaoh down and got him to finally admit that he needed to let the uh, Israelites go, and so he did with that final plague. We also talked about how God uh, um, redeemed the Israelite firstborn sons by passing over the homes of the Israelite people who had the blood of the sacrificed lamb painted over the doorposts of their home. So this week, we are going to be continuing to look at God's redemption of the people of Israel. And ultimately, we are actually going to see in these stories, especially the stories that we are going to be going through today, we are going to be able to see our redemption as well. The story of God's redemption of a people that is set apart for him doesn't just take place in the book of Exodus. It is, a, it is, it is something that wasn't just in place when Jesus arrived either. It is in place in our lives today as well, and it's going to carry on until Jesus returns, and all of God's people are brought into the kingdom of God, and, and uh, the redemption process will take place until that happens. And as we look at scripture, especially the Old Testament, we see all these, these rules and these festivals and these customs, and we're like, what is God doing with all of these different things? Is he just trying to like make it hard for people to live? Like, what is the deal with all of this stuff? And we try to answer that question, and we say things like, well, like the reason God puts all of this stuff in place and all these rules, and he wanted the Israelites to follow that was because he wanted them to look a certain way. God wanted the Israelites to look like a people that were set apart for him, and they look different, and so, so that's why they do that. But this answer only paints a part of, uh, this answer only gives part of, part of the answer, I believe, uh, and that's because I think a more full answer would look like this. The customs, regulations, and festivals that God gives the people are so others will see that they are set apart for him and so his redemptive work can be seen in the world. And if we miss that other part, that so they can be uh, seen, uh, see his redemptive work in the world, then we miss a very significant part of what God is doing in these stories, in these festivals, and in these customs. This is also why God takes so seriously deviations from his commands. Because when we deviate from the Lord's commands, we no longer accurately reflect the picture of what God is trying to communicate to the world about his redemption, about our redemption, I should say. For example, this week, I was reading a passage in my Bible from Ezekiel, and I've been going through Ezekiel for a while. I know you're so impressed. Oh, wow. <laughs> Ezekiel is not the funnest book to go through, but it's been, it's been a challenging book, and, and, and I've pulled some interesting truths out of it as I've read it. Chapter 33 specifically I went through this week, and um, 
You see in this chapter that God is upset with this remnant of, of Israelites that's left in Jerusalem. At this point, the Babylonians, they've come in and they've cast out all the Israelite people. They've exiled them. They're gone. And there's just this small amount of people left in Jerusalem. And God's ticked at these guys. He is ready to, to rid the earth of them. And he's talking to Ezekiel about it. And he's saying, like, I'm going to get rid of them. And you need to tell people that this is what's going to happen and this is why. And he gives this small list of reasons of why he He's going to rid the earth of them. And one of the reasons he gives is because they're eating meat with blood in it. Like, who cares, right? Like, why is it such a big deal to God that they're eating meat with blood in it? I mean, other than it's a really gross thing to do, why does God care so much? And why is he going to wipe them off the face of the earth if they eat this meat? And that's, that's part of the answer. So we find the answer to that question in the book of Leviticus, where God gives the explanation for why this is in Leviticus 17.11. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. God doesn't want us to eat the meat and the blood of animals because in God's economy, blood is the currency that is used to pay for our redemption. Eating it in a common way as a person would a meal and a normal side, uh, you know, accompaniment of a meal softens the picture of a life for a life that God is trying to paint for us. God wants us to equate blood with redemption and atonement, not food. And if we equate it with food, it will ultimately take away glory from Jesus because his shed blood on the cross is reduced to something akin to just having like another bowl of tomato soup at the dinner table. God will not allow his glory to be, to be diminished in that way. And so we have this rule that he's put in place. So today we're going to be looking at some of these things. We're going to be going through these stories and we're going to be seeing the customs and the stories. But we're not just going to be looking at the stories. We're going to be going deeper to see how these things reveal God's redemptive hand at work within them. And not just for the Israelites, for us as well today. So let's pick the story up this morning in chapter 13, and you can turn in your Bibles right now. I'm not going to have all the passages up on screen because they can be quite long, so I'm going to just have the, the chapter and verse number up there. So follow along with me in your Bible or tablet now. Here's where we read. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me every firstborn male. The offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether animal, human, or animal. In these verses, God is setting the stage for the nation or for the people to become a nation. Israel has grown from a, a large group of people and, and he's about to make them into a nation, his nation. So the, as the Israelites depart from Egypt, God takes these rules and these festivals and he starts putting them on the people so that they will look like his people and they will be what he wants them to be. In these first two verses, the firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And I know you ladies are sitting in the audience and you're going, well, why is it just the boys? Like, why can't we get consecrated? But both men and women are covered here in this consecration of the firstborn. And we know this because a little bit further back in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, we see Moses talking to Pharaoh and he says this. This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. So we know that the consecration of the firstborn male from this verse is more than just the boys. It's a representation of the consecration of the entire nation of Israel. Now let me just explain this a little bit further. In that culture, the firstborn male was a prized possession for the family. 
Because through the firstborn male, <clears throat> the family lineage would carry on. The name was passed down. The assets were passed down through that family member. And so he was a prized possession because it meant that things got to carry on. And it was this proud thing. And so this is the equivalent. This verse is the equivalent of God saying, all of Israel is like my firstborn son. They are all my prized possession. And they will carry out my lineage. The word consecrate that we see here in our English translation is the word kadash in Hebrew, and it means to be sanctified, prepared, made holy, set apart. And this is what the Lord has done with the nation of Israel. He has taken this group of people out of all humanity, and he, has, and he is preparing them, and he has set them apart so that they will be his. Israel will be consecrated to God, and that's what's going on in these chapters. But there will be more to come. When Jesus arrives on the scene and after he uh, dies on the cross, his blood would now make it so that everybody who wants to believe in him could become a child of God. So Israel is the firstborn of that. After this announcement, our passage then continues with further instructions regarding a celebration which is to be observed in connection with the Passover meal. And remember, we talked about the Passover meal last week. This celebration is meant to be done in connection with that feast. It's called the Festival of Unleavened Bread. You know, doesn't that just sound like a delightful name for a festival? Mmm, good eating there, right? Delicious unleavened bread. Anyway, let's keep reading. Then Moses said to the people, commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today, in the month of Aviv, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, he gets all the ites covered in this. The land he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey. You are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast. And on the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. This is where we need to start digging a little bit deeper if we're gonna see God's plan of redemption for us in this festival. God isn't in the business of wasting time and he's not in the business of doing things for no reason. And so uh, he's not like us. Like for example, I think if God had a bed, he wouldn't have throw pillows on it because throw pillows are useless. Can I get an amen out of that? There we go. <laughs> Think about it for a second, though. Throw pillow. I used to build houses, and in the design of a house, there is no place for a throw pillow. You take them off the bed, and you put them on the floor. There is no other place for them. So they go off the bed, onto the floor, onto the floor, back onto the bed. And if you're unfortunate enough to get your skin, your cheek, to brush up against one of those pillows, you realize it's not even comfortable. These things are useless. There is no point to throw pillows. And so it begs the question, and teenagers, I hope you're listening right now. If God had a bed, would he make it? I mean, think about it for a minute. Making your bed is useless. You just have to unmake it to make it usable, correct? So if God had a bed, I don't think he would make it. Can you see this conversation happening between Jesus and his mom? Jesus, make your bed. Mom, out of all eternity, I've come here for 33 years to save the world and convince them that I'm their savior. I'm not gonna waste my time making my bed. Like, what do you, how do you argue against that? 
Anyway, these are the deep theological truths you came here to talk about this morning, I'm sure, right? (laughs) So what's the deal with the yeast? What's the deal with the yeast? Why the unleavened bread? And we know that part of the answer to this unleavened bread thing is that the people left in haste. They left quickly, and so their bread didn't have time to rise. But hear me out on this. Wouldn't it have been better to call it the festival of deliciously baked risen goods? I mean, that has some messianic overtones to it. Then you can have some kosher donuts with it, and it's just delicious food, right? But that's not what God does. They've been waiting for 430 years for the Lord to redeem them, so why didn't God just give them an extra eight to 10 hours to let their bread rise? It's a good question, right? And knowing that God isn't in the business of doing anything for nothing or doing things for no reason, we should really figure out why God chose to bring this thing with the yeast into this picture and get them to celebrate it in this way. In much of scripture, yeast is used to describe things that are not good. In the Old Testament, yeast is not allowed to be a part of the sacrifice that is offered on the altar to God. And even before God creates the nation of Israel and long before he set rules before people to follow, in in Genesis chapter 19, we see these angels come to this man, Lot, and they are offered bread. And the author takes great care to let us know that it is unleavened bread that they are served. Like, who cares? Why is that important to the story? And yet, they're clear, and they make it clear that, that, that that's important for us to know. In the New Testament, Jesus talks about the yeast of the Pharisees in the Gospels. In Galatians 5, Paul cautions the believers that the heretical teachings that were being put out there and these additional conditions on what it meant to be saved uh, were, were like yeast spreading. And in 1 Corinthians 5, 8, Paul says this, Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The bread made without yeast is pure and it's good, whereas malice and wickedness are considered the yeast of the other. In most accounts in scripture, yeast is a picture of sin. And so we can learn a lot about God by studying yeast in the Bible For example, in this passage, after they celebrate the Passover meal, they are called to observe a period of time where they don't have any yeast in their lives for seven days. This seven-day period of time should have revealed to them and to the rest of us that God wants us to have this period of sinlessness in our lives. You know, they were told to live without yeast. So we need to look at that and we need to see, oh, God wants us to have no yeast, no sin in our lives. Here's the interesting thing, though. That seven-day period of sinlessness came after they ate the Passover meal. Are we making the connection here? Jesus, the Passover lamb, ushers in a period of sinlessness in our lives. That's an amazing picture. But it's not a perfect picture yet because we're not sinless. And we know that. This side of heaven, while we're still breathing, we sin. So it's not a perfect picture. But listen to what scripture says. This blew my mind this week, so pay attention. In verse seven, eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you. Nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. What a strange way to word that. Why wouldn't God just say, there should be no yeast among you, nor there shouldn't be any yeast in your borders? Why the addition of the word seen? I'll tell you why. 
It's because the picture of redemption that God is painting for us here is not complete without the word seen in it because we aren't sinless. While this body is still alive, we are still sinful. But for the believers, from the Father's perspective, we are seen as sinless. Not because we're without sin, but because Jesus has taken our sin upon himself. So the picture that God is painting for us in this festival is not complete unless we have the word seen in it. That's amazing. Do you see how this festival pointed to Jesus? This is one of the first things that God tells them as he's making them into a nation. He tells them about this this festival and it's like saying, hey, just so you know, Jesus is coming and your redemption is on its way. Every time you celebrate this, it's pointing you to that day. If you're sitting here today and you're thinking, yeah, but my sin's too big. God God couldn't, couldn't possibly accept me for who I am. He doesn't know what I've done, what I've thought, how I've acted. You need to look at this, the truth that's revealed in this festival. Jesus's blood is enough to cover your sins. This festival shows us Uh, you know, that that we are to be seen with no yeast in us. It doesn't say that, well, you know what? There's there's gonna be big pieces of yeast that we'll still see, but the little pieces of yeast, you should get rid of those. No, it's saying there is no yeast to be seen among us. Long before Jesus died, he was preparing the hearts of the world for this truth to arrive. And now it has. The truth of Jesus is this. There is nothing that can diminish the power of Jesus's blood over sin. It is enough. And any voice that speaks to the contrary of that truth is Satan trying to diminish the work of Jesus in the world and that voice needs to be silenced in your heart right now. At the conclusion of this seven-day festival, the people are are told to hold a celebration. And this completes the image that God is painting for us about redemption for us in this festival. There is celebration that happens after redemption. And at the end of our lives, when we are ushered into God's kingdom as a people whose sins have been forgiven by Jesus, we will celebrate in heaven with our Lord. And there's plenty of scripture in the Bible that points to that celebration and what that will be like. Let's keep reading. Verse eight. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will for you or this observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time, year after year. Well, obviously, as we have discussed, we know that it is important that the Israelites keep this festival, not just for their sake, but because the world needs to know about this, whether they realize it or not. God's telling them, this observance will be a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. Essentially, God is saying, don't forget about this celebration. It is crucially important that you keep this as my people because it's gonna be a sign for you, a sign of things to come, like a sign on your hand that would be hard for you to miss and a sign on your forehead which would be hard for other people to miss. Let this celebration reveal to you and the world how I operate. Let them see a glimpse of my redemptive work in the world through this festival. But they missed it. The Israelites' hearts were hard towards God and they missed that truth. 
This celebration became about following customs and, and being ritualistic instead of seeing God at work. If anybody should have uh, seen Jesus, as, uh, understood Jesus' arrival when he came, it was these people. But because they didn't care enough to understand what, what God was doing through these things, they missed it. And they exchanged the truth of God for legalism, something they could manage, something they could organize and bring on themselves and work towards their own salvation. Look at this picture. This is a picture of someone who follows the letter of the law. These boxes on his head, and you can see one on his bicep there, they're called phylacteries. And they contain Hebrew texts worn on the forearm and the, the hand of a Jewish man uh, during morning prayer. Uh, this these things are the literal, literal interpretation of passages of scripture like this one right here in Exodus 13, verse nine. This is what happens when we miss the purpose of what God is asking us to do or we misinterpret what he's telling us in his word. We substitute legalism or we substitute the truth for legalism. God wasn't concerned that these uh, people physically wore these laws on their hands and, and, and put them on their foreheads. He was concerned that they revealed the truth of his redemptive work in the world to the people. How do phylacteries do something like that? It's like the Jesus fish on our car. Now, don't get mad at me if you have a Jesus fish on the car. There's nothing wrong with them. But that cute little fish doesn't have any power to change anyone's heart. I'm sorry. Probably hurt. <laughs> I know I've just ruined some of that for you guys. Anyway, all this goes to show us that even as these new things, these new rules and these new practices and these new festivals were being handed down to the people, even as that was happening, all this points us to the fact that they weren't good enough. Something better was still gonna have to come. Festivals and, cu and customs were, were not gonna be enough to get the job of redemption done. But listen to this. Listen to what we hear in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Observing festivals and following rules are like wearing God's laws on our hands and our foreheads or like putting a Jesus fish on our car. They can point us to the truth, but they have little power to make us believe. So God made a better way in Jesus. The people of the Old Testament would have longed to have the truth of God revealed in their hearts the way that we have it today by the power of the Holy Spirit softening our hearts so that we can understand and take the word in and believe it and accept it. Let's keep reading, Exodus 13, 11. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you, as he promised on oath to you and your ancestors, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of the livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. When God wraps up uh, the instructions about the festival of, of unleavened bread, he brings us back into this discussion about the firstborn males, the consecration of the firstborn males. Here we see that the firstborn male of all the animals is to be sacrificed as an offering to the Lord. 
if it's an animal that cannot be sacrificed because it's not good for food or it's unclean or, you know, in the given example of a donkey here, it is to be redeemed by the blood of a lamb. If for any reason that the animal cannot be redeemed, then that animal is to be killed. When it comes to the Hebrew children, God just says, redeem them. He doesn't give many options or any option to that. It's just, you need to redeem these children. And probably as some of the Jewish people were like, I'd rather keep the lamb. But that's not what God allows them to do here. He basically said, you need to redeem your children. The consecration of the firstborn is another place where we see God's redemptive plan at work in the world. In the exodus from Egypt, God's children are redeemed by the blood of the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb. And this passage of scripture tells us that um, the Israelite children, the future Israelite generations, are going to be, need to be redeemed by the blood of, of a lamb. And all this should have pointed to Jesus because you know, Jesus' blood is what redeems his children. He is the sacrificial lamb of God's children. And consequently, that is why the Jewish parents must redeem their children. Because if they didn't redeem their children, it would mess up this picture that God is painting about our redemption in this consecration of the firstborn. Can you see how God has consistently shown us in the things that he's done, his plan of redemption for us? It's pretty amazing. I don't have this one up on the screen, but I'm going to read it to you. Romans 1 verse 20 says this, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have clear, been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. The practices of the consecration of the firstborn and all of these other customs and festivals are gonna be what cause a lot of people great dismay one day when we're standing before the Lord because it'll have been so clear and so plain as day when they look back and all the distractions of life and the things in this world that make us not realize these things, they're gonna be stripped away and these things are gonna be as plain as day and they're gonna have missed it. If nothing else, these practices should serve as motivation for us to study our Bibles. The world is consistently trying to reconstruct the wisdom and the truth of God but if we know and we understand his, the truth of his word that he's revealed to us, then we know and we won't abandon the truth of God for the foolishness of this world. And this kind of stuff happens all the time in our world. We gotta know the God of our Bible. We don't want to accept the watered-down version that popular culture is constantly trying to force down our throats. We need to know the God of the Bible. Let's keep reading. Verse 14 through 16, in the days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn both, of both people and animal in Egypt. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord, the first male offspring of every womb, and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. One of the interesting things that this section of scripture shows us is that these practices were meant to spur discussion on. As they would practice these things, it was meant to cause people to ask, why? Why are you doing this? Why are you cooking that? It was meant to create conversations so that the Israelites could go and then explain what God was doing in these festivals. 
and uh, we actually see some of this. Jeremiah, in the, in the continuing part of Jeremiah that we read earlier, we actually see him address this. In Jeremiah 34, we see, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sin no more. The process of sharing God's plan of redemption of the world was not complete under the old covenant. Our words can do little to affect someone's soul. Without the help of the Holy Spirit, they are effectively as good as saying to somebody, know the Lord, or putting the Jesus fish on the back of our cars. But after Jesus shed his blood, we would be given the gift of the Holy Spirit. I stated a minute ago uh, that customs and rules can only point us to the truth, but they have little power to make us believe. But the Holy Spirit softens our hearts so that we can understand and believe. Believe. God softens our hearts to understand his truth. And he does this because he wants to change your life and he wants to change my life because we are his children. God wants your life to bring glory to his name. He doesn't want the world to see his redemptive plan at work anymore through festivals and through customs. He wants the world to see his plan of redemption at work through you and through me, through his followers, through his children. The question is though, Are you allowing him to work in you so that you are now the expression of his redemption in the world? I hope so, because scripture talks quite negatively about believers who are lukewarm. Their faith is not evidently alive within them. And you can understand why after we've gone through some of this today, because you are God's new picture of redemption in the world. So of course he wants to use you. And of course he wants you to live a vibrant life of faith. The world depends on it. And even more than that, God's glory demands it of his followers. Now, we have a lot to get through in this sermon series, and so there's a lot of chapters that we go through in each sermon, and so we're gonna go through the account of the Red Sea quite quickly right now, but I purposely wanted to take some extra time this morning to go through some of this, to bring out some of the truths that we see in something we might normally just gloss over. There is some amazing stuff in there, and I know that we can glean quite a bit from from the story of the Red Sea, but um, we don't have a lot of time to go through all of it this morning. But there's some amazing truths in the story of the Red Sea that are like Exodus 13. We see God's redemptive purpose for us in the story of the Red Sea as well. And so I'm just gonna summarize the story of the Red Sea mostly here. Basically what happens is this. Pharaoh lets the Israelites go and the Israelites take off, not by the short route. Uh, I read one commentary that said if they had gone the short route, God would have had them at the promised land in two weeks. (laughs) But instead he had them wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. But that's what God does with us. He takes us the, wrong, the long route when he wants to do something with us, when he wants to make us into something. And so he takes the Israelites on the long route, but that route gets them hemmed in between the Red Sea and between the wilderness, the mountainous areas. And so they're kind of stuck there. In the meantime, Pharaoh has realized this is not so good. The coffee shops aren't open. Nobody's running any businesses. Real estate is plumbing because of all the empty houses. Nobody's working the fields. The economy is collapsing. This is not good for Egypt. And so Pharaoh immediately forgets about all the plagues of Egypt and goes, we gotta go get those guys back. And he heads off. He gets the best of Egypt's might and he takes off to to take back the Israelites from the Lord. 
And as he travels on, he catches up with them and sees them hemmed in at the edge of the Red Sea. And he's, think, we've, he's thinking, we've got them. There is no way out. They are trapped. And here's where we'll pick it up. Then the Lord said to Moses, raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the waters so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Skipping down to verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army, and he threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving, and the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting against, uh, for them against Egypt. Now, these Egyptians would have just gone through the 10 plagues of Egypt. So when God starts working against them and things stop going their way, it's like the light bulb goes on. Oh, we're in trouble now. God is on their side. We forgot. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and the chariots and the horsemen. Moses stretched his, out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back into its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The waters flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and, the, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of God, uh, of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Looking at this story, many people throughout history have tried to scientifically demonstrate how this parting of the Red Sea would have happened. Some people have suggested that the, the, the force of the wind and the blowing of the wind caused the sea to recede much like a tide receding and it opened up the land and so there was this picture of kind of like, like the sea at low tide and the Israelites were able to walk across dry land. Others have suggested that they were uh, in a marshy area and the wind dried out the marsh and, and the Israelites were able to walk across that dry land but then the wind stopped and when it stopped, the water came back into the marsh and it swallowed up the Egyptians that were trying to cross it. And still others have said, maybe there's a conveniently placed sandbar and maybe the waters were low that day and then the Israelites were able to cross on this sandbar across the Red Sea. This side of heaven, we're probably not gonna know for sure, but let me suggest to you three reasons why I think it happened much the way that we think about it in the text and much the way we would see it in a kid's storybook. First, the text itself says that there was a wall of water on their right and on their left. Most of the explanations that we have for the crossing of the Red Sea don't fit that kind of image that that creates. The second thing is, in the following chapters, chapter 15, there is this song that Moses and Miriam sing and the nation sings as they stand along the seashore after they've just witnessed all of this and they praise the Lord. And this is what they say in that song. There's very descriptive language in, in 15 verse eight. But the, by the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. 
The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. Well, there's no need for water to congeal unless it needs to hold its shape. And it doesn't need to hold its shape unless for some reason, reason it's disobeying the natural laws of physics. But the third reason that I think we see here or can see here and probably the most compelling of them all is that the Red Sea shows us another image of God's redemptive work in the lives of the Israelites and in our lives. When the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, they, they, they went from their old way of life, which was slavery and bondage to sin in Egypt, and they left that behind them. And as they went through the waters of the Red Sea, they emerged on the other side a new people, a new creation, God's people en route to the promised land. God baptized the whole nation of Israel in that moment, that day, as they went through the waters. They entered the waters as slaves, but they emerged the other side as free people, a nation for God. And after he does this, they stand on the shore and they sing praises to him of how magnificent he is for delivering them this new life. If they just passed on top of the waters like some of these things say, then, then we would lose this image of the redemption that God is trying to paint for us in this story. This story isn't just a great bedtime story about a historical event. It's a picture of God's redemptive plan for us, that he would save us from our old way of life, which was in bondage to sin, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he would bring us into a new way of life, a freed people, a redeemed people, and people on their way to the eventual promised land one day in heaven. Baptism is a big deal to God. Take a look at what he's doing here. It reveals an important truth about him, that he has the power to redeem and bring people into new life with him. So when we get baptized, we join with all the generations of God's people through all time, proclaiming the redemption of God to the world. If you are a believer and you have not been baptized, the time to get baptized is now because you are God's living, breathing story of redemption to the world. And it's time to proclaim that you are his child to the world. You are set apart for him. Is there any wonder why this is one of the two ordinances that we're still commanded to do to this day? There's two, that's it. We have baptism and we have the Lord's Supper. It's not Christmas, it's not Easter, it's just baptism in the Lord's Supper. The amazing exodus from Egypt concludes in chapter 15 with the song of Moses and Miriam, who is Moses' sister, and the whole nation of Israel singing praises to God. And there's so much more that we can talk about in that passage of scripture, but the one thing that I wanna know and make clear is that the completion of God's redemptive work brings about praise. The story was first, uh, pardon me, this, this uh, story was the first act of redemption that God had done with the nation of Israel. And at the end of it, they praise his name. And it includes, this, this particular passage of scripture is actually the first time that we see a song sung in the Bible. It's the first time that Israel uh, praises the Lord corporately as a nation. And at the end of it all, as, they, as he has redeemed his people and he has delivered them, they proclaim, the Lord reigns. And in Revelation 15, as the, the last seven plagues are being poured out on the earth, and, and with that, God's judgment on the earth will be finalized and complete, we see this. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire. Standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name, 
They held harps given to them by God and they sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. This is a picture back to that first time the nation was singing after he redeemed them and saved them. He says, great and marvelous are your deeds. Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways. King of the nations, who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. When the Israelites were brought into a new life as a nation, they stood on the shore of the sea and they, de- they declared, the Lord reigns. When we are forgiven of our sins and we confess our faith in Jesus, our hearts declare, the Lord reigns. And at the end of days when we are taken into heaven and God is victorious over all evil, we will all stand together with all people and we will declare, the Lord reigns. From the beginning to the end, the redemptive work of God brings glory to his name. Isn't that amazing? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this amazing picture and these things that you teach us in your word. We thank you for the privilege of living in a time where your Holy Spirit reveals these truths to us. That we don't have to say to one another, know the Lord, because Lord, you work in our hearts to understand and see this truth. We thank you for that. God, allow us to be people who are uh, living for you now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.